0: Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Corey Robin, who wrote a book on the history of the right, and he's also been well-versed in the immense corruption of the Supreme Court. There's, of course, the Clarence Thomas story about how he's basically—he basically has a sugar daddy billionaire. Um, And then you have—now there's a new one involving Neil Gorsuch. I don't know if you saw this one, but— yeah yeah very corrupt when
1: John Roberts blocking any sort of scrutiny or accountability, but yeah he he wrote a whole book about Clarence Thomas, which uh, I heard him talking to Brianna about, which was really fascinating about how he came up as a, a sort of militant black nationalist, and how some of those views still inform and shape his um jurisprudence today, which is something I did not know, so that's very interesting, different way of looking at the man
0: well, you know, it's actually real life horseshoe theory, mm-hmm. black nationalists and white nationalists, yeah, because Malcolm X pre him going to Mecca and having like a change of heart, but he used to say, we're not in favor of segregation. We're in favor of separation. He would say segregation is something that's enforced by superiors on inferiors. Separation is something that's mutually agreed upon by equals. Yeah. And so they would, he would literally argue for like segregation, but give it a new name. You know what I mean? And that's what black nationalists oftentimes believe.
1: Yeah. So I think it's important. I mean, this is obviously an incredibly powerful man to try to have some, better insight into how he arrives at the positions that he arrives at. And uh, Corey even argues that, you know, his like corruption is sort of ideological. Like he doesn't see it as corruption. He just sees this as like sort of realist realism that, about the way that politics works. So I'm not excusing. I'm just saying, no, no, I like, know, it's I know. interesting to understand where how he may be viewing these things. But
0: honestly, that's like almost everybody in D.C. thinks like, what do you mean? This right. is this just is how just it works.
1: How, how things are This done. is the way
0: it works. That's crazy. They can't imagine a different way. It's crazy. Anyway, yeah, yeah you're right. Um, all right, so we'll get into that in a little bit. Before we do, I got, we got some interesting stuff to talk about today, Crystal. You know oh, we yeah. were chomping at the bit to get to this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, we listened to this together, an AI conversation of you and I debating breakfast foods. <laughs> we listened to it together, and there's so much we wanted to say, but we were like, save it for we on the air. We do um, the name of the guy who made uh,
1: this. Let's give a shout I do. out to him. So
0: uh, Jesse Newman is the guy's name. Um, it's at Philmantopia. F-I-L-M-A-N-T-O-P-I-A. He put this together. Shout out to him. So what he did basically, and we'll play it for you guys in a second, the AI debate between me and Crystal. (laughs) He heard you and I cover that new Drake, The Weeknd, totally fake AI-generated song. Yeah. And my commentary was like, this really is a turning point. It blew my mind. Not only did it seem real to me, it seemed even better than other Drake and The Weeknd songs. Yes. And so in- In the process of that commentary, I made the argument, I don't think it's there yet with conversation because there's still something like I've seen the ones online, Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan talking totally AI generated, Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro talking totally AI generated. There's still something about it that's in that uncanny valley that sounds a little too robotic. Uh, It doesn't have the flow, the rhythm, the cadence of a normal conversation. Yeah. And so he basically wanted to rebut that. And he was like, look. Um, you know, this this is my response to Kyle saying you can't be tricked by an AI conversation yet, and he thinks this proves his point. Um, I still haven't changed my opinion, but nonetheless, well, let's, let's listen, I'll, uh, we'll react, and we'll give our actual position on the substantive discussion here. <laughs> so everybody take a look. All right, so today we're going to discuss something that might seem a bit silly on the surface, but we've realized that we have some pretty strong opinions on this particular topic.
1: Yeah, it's one of those debates that you don't expect to get heated, but somehow it always does. And it's about a staple in many of our lives, breakfast foods.
0: Exactly. So the great debate is, which is the superior breakfast food, pancakes or waffles? Now, before we reveal our stances, let's just set the stage a little bit. We've got um, pancakes, uh, the fluffy, delightful discs that can be dressed up with various toppings and fillings.
1: And then there are waffles with their beautiful grid pattern, crispy edges, and those little pockets that are perfect for holding syrup, butter, or any other uh, topping you can imagine.
0: So, without further ado, I'll reveal
1: that I am Team Pancakes all the way. And I am firmly on Team Waffles. I mean, come on, they're clearly the superior choice with their perfect little compartments for all the deliciousness. See, that's where
0: you're wrong. Pancakes are versatile, they're fluffy, and they absorb the syrup like a dream. You can't beat that.
1: I think you're forgetting about the delightful crispiness of waffles. Pancakes can get soggy and mushy while waffles maintain their texture.
0: Oh, please. Pancakes are like a warm, comforting hug in the morning. Plus, you can make them in so many different ways. Blueberry pancakes, chocolate chip pancakes,
1: banana pancakes. Oh, wow. I'm so impressed by your three pancake variations. Waffles have just as many options. And don't even get me started on the versatility of waffles when it comes to toppings. Whipped cream, fruit, nuts. The list goes on.
0: Okay, I'll give you that. Waffles do have some nice topping options, but pancakes are the ultimate classic. They're simple, yet satisfying. Sometimes less is more crystal.
1: Are you calling me high-maintenance, Kyle Kalinske?
0: Not at all, my dear. But sometimes you do have a flair for the extravagant.
1: Well, maybe I do, but I just think waffles bring a little extra pizzazz to the breakfast table. Plus, they're easier to make. You just pour the batter into a waffle iron, and you're good to go. No flipping required.
0: Oh, the flipping is part of the fun. It's a skill that takes time to master, but when you've got it down, there's nothing more satisfying than a perfectly flipped pancake.
1: Well, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on this one, Kyle, but I still think waffles are the clear winner here.
0: And I'm not backing down from my love for pancakes, but hey, that's what makes life interesting, right? Different opinions and
1: preferences. And we still love each other despite our breakfast differences.
0: (laughs) So apparently the AI knows we're together, which is kind of funny, right? (laughs) Um... So I'll let you react first, then I got a whole list of stuff I can I get know. to, but go ahead. <laughs> um,
1: okay, so first of all, I'm curious from your perspective, taking our own personal opinions and personalities out of it, whose AI do you think won that debate?
0: Um, that's fun. I'd actually never thought about that. Uh, I would probably lean towards your person,
1: though. Yeah, I think my AI was a better debater too, because there's this one the the point where I get <laughs> a little bitchy and I'm like, "Oh wow, I'm so impressed with your three variations of pancakes," and then my comeback is like, "To give three variations, tons of toppings," and then I'm like, "Nuts, whipped cream, fruit." The list goes on. And I don't and call you, don't, you out on that. Yeah, you don't seize on the moment to be like, you just gave, oh, I'm so impressed with your list of three topics, yeah. Crystal. Obviously, <laughs> real world obvious Kyle. That was the
0: first thing I thought when I heard it. I was like, I would obviously respond with like, you just gave
1: three. Um, so in terms of like how close to real life it is, your voice is totally off. Mine, I think, is closer to my actual voice. Your voice, to me, doesn't sound like you at all. Um, That's
0: it. So hold on. just Let me yeah. just interject. You yeah. say it doesn't sound like me at all. I say they're like, 45% of the way there. Yeah, I hear bad. that it sounds a little bit like me, but I think, and uh, credit to Mac, good politic guy, he pointed this out originally. It sounds more like a mix between me and Ben Shapiro.
1: its, it's um has some of your cadence. Right. But in terms of the actual tone of the voice, it doesn't,
0: It's more nasally, it's a little more high-pitched. It's too high-pitched. It just doesn't really
1: sound like you. So there's that. I think mine sounds a little bit closer to, I think it sounds like my voice.
0: Your voice is better, but I would still argue not perfect. Not exactly right. No.
1: The other thing that he mentions is the way the conversation unfolds, which is very, like, it, do- it isn't organic. It's very like presentation-y. Yeah, there's no rhythm. He said that might be because what he fed into the AI was more our monologues versus our conversations. Yes. And that may make it more stilted than if he fed into it more like our actual yeah, back and forth.
0: But then do that, right? Like, yeah. I want to hear what it sounds like. I what that I'm still be. skeptical they could give it the real rhythm and cadence of a conversation because when you're having a conversation, there's, it's not black and white. It's not like you speak for a block than I speak for a block. There's always like little nuanced interjections here and there. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like a dance. You jump in, then you jump back out real, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's all these different, and that, I don't think it's even close on that front, to be honest. If anything, this, um, you know, makes me want to double down on my take that it's not there yet for conversations. But having said that, I would be interested in hearing, if you feed the AI, you and me talking in conversation, is it going to be closer than what we just listened to there? It
1: almost feels like it's what, this AI generated is more like what a scripted conversation between the two of us would be. Because you're right. In normal conversation, there's always natural little bit of over-talking, a little bit of jumping in, a little bit of interjections. And this has just very like, I'm going to make a point, And then Kyle's going to make a point, And then I'm going to make another point. And it, there's no rhythm. Yeah, there's no rhythm to it. Um, we intentionally, we listened to this earlier in the week, but we very intentionally tried not to talk about our reactions to it. What are you, what team are you actually on? So
0: um, the, the AI, pan- I would say pancakes. the AI is half right in my opinion, but here's how they're half wrong. I think pancakes at their best are better than waffles at their best, mm. but waffles overall are way more consistent. If you get bad pancakes, they're just bad. And also, by the way, I, my bone to pick with pancakes is they're too filling. Sometimes you have one, and it feels like you had like four, and it sort of weighs you down. Yeah. Whereas waffles could be like fluffy and not weigh you down and not be too filling. So if I, I'm gonna order order waffles a higher percentage of the time than I'm gonna order pancakes mm. because they're just more consistent overall.
2: Mm.
1: So does that put you on team waffles?
0: I mean, yeah, it puts you me it puts me fifty five percent sixty percent on team waffles, okay, but again, I just the, my only reservation is that the best pancakes I've had in my life are better than the best waffles I've had in my life yeah
1: see i i actually i guess this is another thing that the a i gets wrong. I actually more or less agree with you i I would put myself though on team pancake because of exactly what you said, and I specifically. Make a lemon ricotta pancake mm. that I think is amazing, mm. delicious, with some berries and whatever amazing. alongside of it. And to me, uh, I've never had a waffle that competes with like that level of pancake. Now. Waffles are also more convenient in that some of the frozen waffles are genuinely good. Yes. Like the Eggo. Eggos I like, are banging. I like an Eggo. I have no problem with an Eggo. OD. Especially the homestyle ones. I don't know if y'all have tried those, but those are pretty good. But overall, if I had to put myself on a team, I would put myself on Team Pancake. So the AI has it actually exactly reversed.
0: That's right. Yeah. I mean, again, like I said.
1: Not that they, there would be any way for the AI to know what our breakfast choices. No, are no I'm just but you know what? It's Look, funny that we are actually on opposite teams. This may
0: sound <laughs> silly, though, but if you're gonna do an AI version of me and it's gonna be accurate, it should be able, at least in the realm of politics, to accurately reflect roughly what my beliefs are. Like, what if you put into Chat GPT? Remember, we did that one time. Have Kyle debate yeah. Trump on Chat GPT? It wasn't that impressive. It was just like a generic Republican versus a generic Democrat. Yeah. That's how it read. Right. Um, but. I, there's no way they can know on this issue what what our positions are. So said anything yeah, about so it's it like ever. I'll give them a pass on it, right. right? But at the same time, it's like when AI really gets to the. To the most extreme point, like when it's its most advanced, in theory, yeah. it should know what I think more than I even do. <laughs> like when I sit down and think it through, it's like, actually, AI just got it exactly right. That's exactly what I think about it.
1: The thing that also the, the part of the conversation that actually read the least authentic to me was the like relationship part. Yep. When I'm like, oh, are you calling me high maintenance? I.
0: Chances Crystal would say those words to me are literally 0%. And and
1: chances you would say, well, you do have a flair for the extravagant Uh, or whatever you you do. That
0: That is so disrespectful. And also, when I called you my dear, I don't know if I've ever called you my dear. I call you babe, I call you baby. Like, there's sure little pet names here and there, but my dear, what am I, 78? Is my name Gerald? Do I drink prune juice? Like, What are we talking about here, my dear?
1: So yeah, that that was actually the part that rang the least true to me was that little like relationship back and forth because that was not true to us at all.
0: But I will say that my favorite part and the part that I think is most accurate and does kind of capture the essence of me a little bit yeah. was uh, the line about like, Pancakes are like a warm, comforting hug in the morning, or pancakes are fluffy like a dream.
1: That was the part I could hear you saying. Yeah, because they absorb the syrup like a dream. Yeah, it
0: (laughs) it captured me on that one. You know, like sort of almost like a Trumpian sounding, but slightly more intelligent, like (laughs) analogy. Like that's 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 that totally is something I would say. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that part I enjoyed very much. So yeah, look overall, if I had to grade it, um, what would you grade it? I'll I'll give it a C plus or B minus in terms of.
1: I give it a. Yeah, pick.
0: so I'm a little more pessimistic than you, a little more down on it than you. But look, that's it, it it's still impressive. It's still impressive. It's and again, impressive. shout out to the guy who made this, Jesse Newman on yeah, Twitter. I mean, we got this, a, this was fun. We really
1: got a kick out of it. Yeah, we this. definitely it got a kick out of it. was telling us to not talk about it until now, but we wanted to save our reactions to be, to be as fresh as possible. The last thing I'll say about it is I wonder if there isn't, though, a sort of last mile problem here with AI, because you see this right. with uh, the automated driving. Where they can get most of the way there, but then like they can't figure out how to do a Nuances left turn the way that human beings do a left. You know, they want the car. This is something Sagar has told me because he has a Tesla. They want the car to just go, like, boop, boop, the way that you technically would if you're perfectly following the rules of driving. No, it's dumb. But humans don't do that. Yes. Right? And you could have the same thing, like you were talking about, that little bit of interjections and overtalk that makes a conversation natural. Can't do it. That could be very difficult for AI to figure out how to really do. So there might be— A real last mile problem here where you get close and you can have things like this where you're like, oh, that actually sounds really good. That's very impressive. But I'm still not convinced that this is an actual conversation between the two of them.
0: We have this issue with our Ford truck. They have an automating automated driving thing. Yeah, there's another car we have too. Same thing. Same it issue. It centers
1: you in the lane. So so you put it. So like
0: you press a button where it does like semi autonomous driving. Like you're supposed to keep your hands on the wheel, but it does like semi autonomous driving. Here's why I despise it with a burning passion. When I'm driving somewhere. There are so many little nuances on the road that I account for. So let's say we're on a road where the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, a little bit up there, mm-hmm. and it's a country road, two lanes, uh, and cars come this way at 55 miles an hour, and you go that way at 55 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's probably more like 62, if we're being honest, like the actual uh, you know, mm-hmm. speed you're going. In a situation like that where one car's coming this way, I'm going this way, I am going to not be right in the smack dab middle of the lane because if this car's in the middle or if this car is floating a little closer to my side – I want to give it a little more space. Yeah. So I'm going to be a solid three and a half, four feet further to the right for for safety reasons to give myself as much space as possible, make sure if there's any issue you could swerve out of the way, whatever. There's all these little nuances that go into driving, and you don't understand how important they are until you're using a system that doesn't account for them. Right. And then you realize, hold on now, they have to program for every little nuance, and you just can't do that. There are too many nuances when you drive. There's too like, it's the old saying, common sense is not so common. And AI does not have common sense. Right. It has like broad rules that they try to abide by. But then you also, by the way, when you're programming it, you're going to run into moral conundrums too. What happens if you're in a situation where you have to pick between, you know, whatever, uh, a young person, like you either veer into one young person or two old people or something like, or like you have no idea the
1: raccoon or coming to us or swerving or what you yes, know. there's all yeah. the,
0: yes there's all these different things that you can account for so my instinctually i tend to agree with your point which is i think the last mile problem is maybe insurmountable it might be insurmountable but having said that i wouldn't be surprised if they can clear it i just think it's going to be a lot harder than a lot of people pretend like there's a lot of tech bro ai bro types who are so bullish on everything AI, mm. and it's like it seems a little naive and almost a little religious to me well, the way these people talk about it.
1: I guess what I would say is, even if they don't clear the last mile problem, I still think it could be transformative. So, oh, of course, it already has been. Right. So, for example, if you think about the news business, which is you know the business I have the most familiarity with, if you have AI that's able to uh, take in like all of the relevant reported out news about the Trump lawsuit, let's say. And when you go and search for information on this lawsuit, rather than having to click through to the New York Times, the Washington Post, whoever, you get the AI generated like amalgamation of all of this information. Like you could see AI doing a decent job of that. That means people aren't clicking through to the website. That means they don't need to go through a paywall. That means they don't need to have an ad served to them like that in and of itself upends the entire news business model. So, even if they don't solve that last mile problem, this still could be a tremendous sort of like revolutionary, for good or ill force within our society. And it's very frightening to me that number one, our legislators have no real ability or inclination to, to think deeply about these things and how we properly regulate it. And number two, perhaps even more troubling, is that this is now being, you know captured by the same giant tech monopolies that have captured everything else. And so they will use this technology to exploit us for profit in ways that are undeniably, undoubtedly going to be contrary to our personal self-interest, probably to the interest of like our country and a democracy and whatever, In all the same ways that we've seen this happen with tech companies before.
0: Shocking that under capitalism, tech innovation is not being used to enrich all the people, but it's being used to enrich a very, very, a very tiny th- number of them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. right.
1: Um, at the same time, we've got some Tucker Carlson news.
0: Yeah, he's reacted now for the first time since his firing. Yeah, yeah.
1: So he uh, recorded a little video. Didn't give a lot of indications about what he's thinking or what he's up to or any of the circumstances underlying his firing. But let's take a listen what he had to say.
2: Notice when you take a little time off is how unbelievably stupid most of the debates you see on television are. They're completely irrelevant. They mean nothing. In five years, we won't even remember that we had them. Trust me, as someone who's participated. And yet at the same time, and this is the amazing thing, the undeniably big topics, the ones that will define our future, get virtually no discussion at all. War, civil liberties, emerging science, demographic change, corporate power, natural resources. When was the last time you heard a legitimate debate about any of those issues? It's been a long time. Debates like that are not permitted in American media. Both political parties and their donors have reached consensus on what benefits them, and they actively collude to shut down any conversation about it. Suddenly, the United States looks very much like a one-party state. That's a depressing realization but it's not permanent. Our current orthodoxies won't last. They're brain dead. Nobody actually believes them. Hardly anyone's life is improved by them. This moment is too inherently ridiculous to continue, and so it won't. The people in charge know this. That's why they're hysterical and aggressive. They're afraid. They've given up persuasion. They're resorting to force. But it won't work. When honest people say what's true, calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. Where can you still find Americans saying true things? There aren't many places left, but there are some, and that's enough. As long as you can hear the words, there is hope. See you soon.
1: So I already reacted on breaking point. So let me hear what you have to say about it.
0: Super lame. And it's lame for a reason because Fox has a gigantic oppo file on him. Mm-hmm. And if he unleashes on them, even if he takes like pot shots at them, That's a great point, they will probably be like, all right, here we go. Here's some more. Here's they'll just leak bit by bit death by a thousand cuts. And in fact, even though that was lame, they still might do a little bit of that mm-hmm. because I'm sure the file is gigantic. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff. And it was a slight shot across the bow to be like, stay tuned. In other words, hey, I want you to still follow me. Right. Don't, don't, you know, don't look at what Fox News is doing. But overall, he's like trying to recreate one of his monologues, but it just comes across flat. Mm-hmm. And a funny point is that's the only spot in the studio that doesn't have uh, Fox, Fox News, news logo stuff. on it. He had to <laughs> point the camera in the one area that didn't have Fox <laughs> News logo on it. This definitely came yeah, yeah. out of the blue for him. Uh, he didn't think it was going to happen, but you made a good point to me. I went through all the reasons why that p- piled on top yeah. of each other as to why he was fired. But you pointed out, he called Suzanne Scott, who's the head of Fox news, a cunt.
1: Well, we in don't internal know if sure it was Suzanne Scott, but that's what I suspect.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, that probably
1: added, his boss a cunt.
0: That added to the mix. So you got the <laughs> yeah. Dominion lawsuit. You got the Smartmatic lawsuit. You got the Grossberg lawsuit. You got the, um, what's the guy's name? The January 6th guy. Oh, Ray Epps. Uh, Ray Epps lawsuit. I forgot about that So you got all those. Then also you have, um, there was a thing, I think it was in um, Vanity Fair that talked about how Rupert Murdoch's uh, ex, who they now broke it off, but they were going to get married. Apparently he was there witnessing a conversation between Tucker and her where she was basically saying he's kind of like the Messiah and he's sent by God. And and Rupert was sitting there like, what are we talking about now? Right. Right. And, And you mix that with all the The conspiracy stuff, which Rupert is not on board with because he's just he's costing him money and he's too much of a headache and he's not on board with that flavor of conservatism. He wants all the hosts to support DeSantis and they're not. Right. Right. And so all those things piled up where he's like, time, time to clean house, son, time to get out of here.
1: Fox News is an ideological project and it's a business project. And Tucker was becoming a problem for both. On the ideological project, Rupert Murdoch has decided he's all in for DeSantis. He told DeSantis that Fox News would be backing him. And here he has his number one host who is very influential with the audience, more influential really than anybody else at the network. And he's on the wrong side of that intra Republican Party fight. So he's a problem for the ideological effort. And then he was becoming a problem for the business effort because, you know, he got too big for his britches. He thought he was bigger than Fox News. He thought he could go around calling whoever his bosses are a cunt. And part of the reporting was they managed to get that redacted from the Dominion filings. And he was mad because he wanted the world to know that he had called this senior executive, whether it was Suzanne Scott or someone else, a cunt. So, yeah, they had felt like they needed to check him it's his show even though it's highly rated Low is not particularly lucrative because advertisers stay away from it yep. and you're costing them you know potentially billions of dollars from your involvement in all of these lawsuits god only knows what uh, abby grossberg has in her back pocket in terms of additional embarrassing text audio etc and so yeah what irritated me about that video and about some of the coverage of him is like trying to make him out into some sort of like free speech martyr. You tell me if you called your boss a cunt and you were costing your company billions of dollars, what do you think is the reason that you're getting fired? It, you know, and that's the part that's like sort of, uh, the way that he frames himself like he's so righteous etc and always just speaking the truth and thank god there are still places where the truth can still be heard okay please come on
0: uh, the one that that really sends me the worst take on this is the the reason he was taken down is cuz he's a he's an iconoclast standing up against the establishment and he's a you know on foreign policy he's anti-war this is the guy who had on some, I don't even know, I don't know, former military guy, intelligence agency guy, dude came on and said we should be sitting on a throne of Chinese skulls, and Tucker was nodding along in agreement. Right. So don't tell me he's some sort of anti-war hero. Also, by the way, throughout Fox News, a number of different people have been going around saying we should do a literal war with Mexico, start bombing the cartels. Don't tell me he's anti-war. You could say certain wars he's a little more skeptical of, but he just wants to redirect it into other wars. And by the way, when you're a supporter more generally of the Republican Party, which he is, then by no stretch of the imagination can you say that this guy's anti-war. He takes populist energy and redirects it to the standard neoconservative corrupt Republican politicians. So in no way, shape or form do I think he's anti-establishment. If anything, it's more pernicious than that because he... Hijacks anti-establishment energy and redirects it into supporting the establishment at least with other people with Hannity He comes as advertised. He never pretended to be a populist He never pretended like he was an outsider and he was taking on powerful interests So the issues that he went through there and i'll end on this point But I think this is the most important point He lists off a bunch of things like oh the media doesn't talk about these things But they should and we do and we'll continue to do it and the list is War, civil liberties, emerging science, demographic change, corporate power, and natural resources. Let's go one by one. War. Again, you had the dude on saying we should sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. Yeah, you're covering war. You're covering it from the wrong perspective. Civil liberties. He's still pro the drug war. You want to talk about civil liberties and you're still anti-weed in 2023? Who are you kidding? You're not some sort of hero. Not even close. Emerging science. You mean like... Tanning your butthole.
1: <laughs> is tanning that what he's referring That is what he's referring to there. Huh?
0: I, I don't know if he's referring to like, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, technology, AI to stuff, kind of
1: like a, a COVID thing. I don't about.
0: know what he's referring to, but the fact he brings up science when he was just advocating spreading your asshole to the sun to cure all your ailments. Like, fuck off, dude. You're a joke. Then we get demographic. Yeah. Real serious demographic change. My neighbor is brown. Oh, What's happened to the country? Oh, demographic uh, change get,
1: get over yourself. It's is, such a red flag. Of like course, that and sort of like
0: he had a, a white nationalist as a top producer and that was outed and he was fired. Now nobody talks about it, but I think that's kind of a big deal for how many years was a avowed white nationalist posting on Nazi forums. The guy who was writing your goddamn scripts. Who are we kidding here? Then you got corporate power. You support Trump and Republican politicians. You actively cuck yourself to corporate power and then you have natural resources. He brings that up like that's an important issue. It is an important issue, but he's a climate science denier. There's going to be wars over water. We're already seeing the evidence of it right now. The Colorado River is drying up and you act like you're some sort of truth teller when it comes to natural resources. What a joke. He's a joke. This guy, he deserves to be, he should have been off the air a long, long time ago. Not because I'm canceling him or I'm anti-free speech because he's bad at his job. He's not a journalist. He's not a reporter. He doesn't even have good, just like analytical takes. From a policy perspective, I, he's a liar. We know he's a liar. It was proven in those leaked yeah. uh, you know, emails and yes. text messages. Yes. So what a clown.
1: I, I disagree that he is bad at his job because his job was to be a propagandist for the Republican Party. And yeah, I you're think right. He was very effective at that. I think he's more effective at that than uh, almost anybody else at Correct. Fox News. But, uh, you know, it was starting to come with a business cost and there was an ideological split between the direction he wants the Republican Party and the direction Rupert Murdoch and co want the Republican Party in and on top of it all, he called his boss a cut. So there's that.
0: That'll do it. <laughs> all right. So last thing real quick. Um, I, you probably covered this already on breaking points. I haven't talked about it yet, yeah. but there was this thing floating around online, kind of astonishing. Uh, Joe Biden was fielding some questions from reporters Yep. and he had in his hand, and this was caught on video on camera. Yep. Um, A list of hey, this is the reporter, this is their name, this is their question, and this is your answer. Yeah. All written out. Yep. Which means, without any doubt, there was direct collusion between the White House and Joe Biden and the reporters, and the whole press conference is just staged. Yeah. It's totally staged. Mm-hmm. So this is a really big deal, and if this was Trump who was doing this, oh. the media would have been like, oh my God, this shows that there is no free media in this country. This shows that this is an authoritarian government. We have, you know... um state media. That's what we have here. This is like North Korea. You get all of the everybody would say that, but everybody would be correct in that instance. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the media is to be a check on the powerful. And this is, you know, it's the old saying that um, they're not being a watchdog of the powerful. They're being a lapdog of the powerful. And it's it's grotesque because here we are doing this show and we try to hold people accountable and we try to talk about real issues. And then you have these people who are in the club. They have disdain for anybody outside of the club, but they're objectively terrible at their jobs and that they do the opposite of what they should be doing in these positions.
1: Yeah, um, it is astonishing because there's two levels here. Number one, the media White House collusion. Um, That is disgraceful. This journalist should be absolutely embarrassed. And it wasn't like. He had on the note card, which a photographer was able to zoom in on. That's why we saw it. It's not like we had, like, generally what she was going to ask about. You had the word for word question that's right. written out. So there's that. And then there's also the questions about Biden is the oldest president in history, and he clearly has been declining, and he's done fewer press conferences and fewer interviews than any other modern president. He's not doing rallies. There are no rallies planned for his campaign So there's also a question about whether his staff trusts him to be able to handle a question that hasn't been planned in advance with an answer written out.
0: He launched his campaign with a video. I've never seen that before. Almost always they give a speech. They have a rally. They do something that's more real time. He didn't do that. Yeah. It's like, okay, who are we going to believe? You are lying eyes. Yeah, this is just you are. It's almost like that wag the dog thing right? That Wag the Dog movie. That's what we're watching in real time. This is totally like Weekend at Bernie's, he's a puppet type stuff.
1: And their only hope is the media, every article about the Democratic primary. No challengers. There's no challengers. No serious. No serious challengers. No serious challengers. challengers. Well, guess what? I was just looking at polls before we came on here. I think it was Emerson just did a poll that has, uh, they did the Republican primary and they did the Democratic primary. There is almost exactly the same gulf between DeSantis and Trump, as there is now between Biden and Kennedy and then Marianne. I mean, it looks, the numbers are very similar. Are, are you going to tell us Ron DeSantis isn't serious? Mike Pence isn't serious? Nikki Haley's not serious? But that's the Biden team's only play is to hope that the public thinks they don't have another yeah. choice. Oh, he's
0: inevitable. That's it. Don't think about it. Don't, don't even, talk about it. Don't, don't look at the news. Don't look at the other candidates. There are no this other is, candidates that matter. Yeah, you it's, have
1: to vote for Joe in the primary. You have to vote for Joe in the general because it's against Trump. And so that's it. You have no choice. He better, Joe Biden, that's He it. better
0: debate them. He better debate them. We're talking about they're going to both be in double digits and you're not going to debate them. The old threshold was like 2%. They're in double digits. And you guys are actually like, no, no serious candidate anywhere.
1: Who the fuck are you to tell us that? It's not up to you. It's up to the American people, and clearly the American people at least have a view of, like, we'd like to hear more from them. They deserve it. I mean, no matter... Listen, I got issues with Bobby Kennedy, you know, the the anti-vaccine stuff. I'm not there with... But it's a democracy. Let the man and Marianne and Joe Biden... Be on a stage, answer questions, articulate their views, defend things that they've said. It's the very least that the American people say, especially after all the Democratic. Oh, democracy. We're the protectors of democracy. What a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. All right, guys, we got a great guest standing by Corey Robin. Uh, He's the author of a number of books. Uh, One of them is called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas that we want to get into. And also another one called The Reactionary Mind, which is kind of a history of conservatism. Let's get to it. Corey, welcome. So glad to have you.
3: Thanks for
1: having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I heard you talking to uh, Brianna on the Bad Faith podcast, and you opened up this uh, world of Clarence Thomas that I had no idea existed. and I've been listening to your book on him since then. Just give our audience a little bit of a sense of his ideological background and how he sort of differs from other conservative members of the court in how he is viewing a lot of the cases that come before him
3: sure uh thomas most people don't know this has a background as a black nationalist on the left uh this began when he was in college um he went the whole nine yards he was into black power he uh organized black student union and led walkouts pushing for more black studies uh, against interracial relationships you know the whole nine yards and um in the 1970s, he starts moving to the right, but what's interesting about him as he moves to the right is he keeps a lot of the basic principles of the Black nationalist left uh, that he had developed you know as a young man. He continues to believe that, I mean first and foremost, that Black people and uh, will always get the, you know, the short end of the stick in America, Um, that there is a permanent divide between blacks and whites, that black people will always be on the wrong side of, um, and that there is really nothing you can politically do to get rid of that kind of racism. Um, He believes in separate institutions for black people. He's very big into uh, separate black institutions. So he's not just a critic of things like affirmative action. Um, he's all goes much further he really is a critic of integration he thinks integration has had a terrible effect on black people And so I would say the biggest distinction between him and other members of the right, particularly white conservatives is that he takes a race first approach he is not a colorblind thinker. Uh, it's the way he marries this uh very self-conscious black uh, position uh, uh, to uh sort of standard, uh, white conservative tropes.
0: So that sounds to me like real life horseshoe theory. It reminds me of, uh, what Malcolm X used to say. He used to say there's segregation and there's separation. I'm anti segregation, but I'm pro separation. Segregation is enforced by superiors on inferiors. Separation is mutually agreed upon by equals, but the end result is functionally the exact same. So let me ask you this. Um, his politics in a sense haven't changed on race issues from when he was a leftist black nationalist uh, versus today? Would you say that that's accurate?
3: Yeah, I think the only difference is that he's probably become more pessimistic about race issues. I think when he got involved on the left, there was some sense that political transformation was in the offing, uh, but very quickly that went away. So there's a much deeper strain of racial pessimism such that I think he would think that the distinction between separation and segregation, and the tinge of the stigma that attaches to segregation, would probably attach to separation as well.
1: So I think a lot of people have trouble squaring this in their minds. Um, help us understand, as one example, how Thomas's race-first view and groundings as a you know originally a leftist black nationalist. How that leads him to now basically backing, you know, laissez-faire, whatever corporations want, you know, being allied now with this uh, conservative right wing billionaire who's funding his trips, et cetera. What is the intellectual journey that leads Thomas's ideology to be consistent with especially that very pro-corporate view that he expresses on the court?
3: Okay. So, uh, when Thomas gets involved uh, in politics on the left, um, as I said, this is you know the late 1960s, early 1970s, and it's a moment of tremendous frustration for the Black freedom struggle. And you see among black nationalists, in particular in black power activists, a real turning away from politics, whether it's politics at the government level, you know, electoral politics, or uh, more social movement, protest kinds of politics. And they start experimenting again at the local level with the with um the market, with capitalism, black capitalism, black owned business, uh, black, you know, black uh consumers and building up black consumer markets and on all that kind of stuff. And Thomas really takes that fact and runs with it and comes to think that when it that all politics, again, whether it's electoral politics, whether it is social movements or protests, will always be white. Politics. It will always be dominated by white people. Black people will never ever uh, be able to leverage their position. And he holds on to this position you know, very vocally up through the time on the court. Um, so that's the first part of it. But the second part of it is this belief that in the market, uh, you know, in the economy, there will be niches or spaces for black people uh, to build black institutions. There's an autobiographical dimension to this. His grandfather uh, is a man by the name of Myers Anderson. He was a small businessman in Savannah and was fairly successful uh, but very you know from very humble origins. And Thomas turns the story of his grandfather into a whole political philosophy, you might say, where strong black men and there's a very uh, patriarchal dimension to this whole story, uh strong black men, Uh, in the marketplace can be successful on very limited terms and can build up a modicum of wealth that will do something like what his grandfather's wealth did for Clarence Thomas, namely gave him a middle-class home, uh, gave him an education in private schools, enabled him ultimately to get to the position that he is in today. In the 1980s, Thomas, as I said, he really turns that story of his, his own autobiography into a political ideology. And he gives a speech in San Francisco at a libertarian think tank in 1987, where he says the problem with liberals, uh, whether they are white or black, is that they they really crap on people like my grandfather in their contempt for capitalism and their contempt for the market. And I should just say parenthetically, particularly for for this audience, that might sound really strange because liberals today are oftentimes embrace the market. They love high-tech entrepreneurs and all the rest. But, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there was a different kind of attitude towards money and toward the market. Mm. And, And Thomas really sees the point of the conservatism that he's developing with its emphasis on money and markets as the path toward the protection of, you know, first Black men and with Black men, um, the Black family and Black institutions and Black communities more generally. And, you know, we can take it from there, but that's really the journey that he undertakes and how he's able to pivot from the left to the right.
0: That almost sounds like an end of history analysis from his childhood through rose-colored glasses. Um Let me ask you this. Was he ever on the left economically or was he always sympathetic to capitalism based on his grandfather's story?
3: I mean, as far as we know, he was definitely on the left economically. Um, You know, he was pushing for all kinds of transformations in black institutions and economic uh, advocacy for the welfare state and, and things like that. Uh, but you're right in the sense, I mean, it's less a failing of Thomas, I think, than what was going on on the left in the late 60s and the early 70s, which is um, there's a real disaffection with the, politi- with, with the ability of politics to intervene in the economy, put it that way. Um, there's a real growing disbelief on the left, just as much as on the right, in the ability of government to transform the economy. So he's not alone in this. And, the, 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 you know, if you read a lot of the, um, you know, Richard Nixon in his 1972 re-election campaign uh, makes a big play for black votes with the slogan that um, uh, capitalism is black power. Now, he doesn't get many black votes, uh, but this is it, it reflects a, what's, what's in the air, which is this real sense uh, on the left and on the right. That government is not the vehicle, politics is not the vehicle for economic transformation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that there are echoes of that same sort of uh, nihilism from the '70s that we see today in uh, whatever is left of the, the leftist movement. Uh, I'm curious, though, as we're looking at all of these various revelations about Harlan Crow and the $500,000 trip to Indonesia or whatever, and the repeated stays at a private lodge and uh, the. Buying of his mother's house in a transaction. None of this, of course, disclosed. And this comes on top of, you know, there have been many other ethics violations that have been revealed. He didn't report his wife's work and compensation. He didn't report compensations from various other trips. There have been a bunch of things that he's been caught in. And then basically, after that, the fact had to amend some of his disclosures, et cetera. So, knowing what you know and learned and studied about Thomas, how would he be viewing? this whole set of circumstances. Does he feel like he did anything wrong? Does he feel like this was just a silly oversight? Um, Does he have some sort of ideological commitment to these types of relationships and and interactions? Help us understand this from his perspective.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about Thomas and these revelations is that if you actually read his court opinions, he has long provided a roadmap for exactly what he has been doing. Um, And so, you know, the way I look about it it, is, it's it's not that the money changed the ideas, it's that the ideas paved the way for the money. Um, And I'll I'll sort of set it out. Um, You know, going back to the 1980s, to that speech I was talking about, um, the conservative movement coming out of the 1970s and the 1980s was really in a bind uh, because um, there had been a kind of settlement on the Supreme Court coming out of the Warren court, which was basically, The the elected branches of the government, the the legislative and and, and the executive branch can have pretty much of a free hand with the economy. And we, the court, won't interfere because the kinds of laws and regulations that have to do with the economy don't rise to the level of constitutional scrutiny. These are just economic questions. They're pragmatic questions. And it's not for the court and it's not for the constitution to pronounce on that. However, said the court, There are a couple of areas of American life that have to be protected by the Constitution. One, of course, has to do with equal rights and racial equality. But the centerpiece that the court really saw itself and that constitutional liberals and judicial liberals really saw as the role for the court was protecting freedom of speech. Speech was considered to be the most sacred, the most intimate, the most personal expression of who you were as an individual and who we are as citizens. And therefore, you have to kind of put a shield around it of rights, protecting it from the uh, from the federal government and from the state governments. And that was what constitutional liberalism meant when Clarence Thomas came of age. And conservatives saw the problem with this, which is that they will never be able to chip away at you know at government regulation unless they take take on this court settlement. And what they what they saw as their opportunity was, what if we can redescribe or reimagine? Um, sorry, those are very academic words, but what if we can take activity in the economy and think of it as speech, and therefore it will have the kind of protection that things like political speech currently have. Mm. And so let's just take a very simple, and you know the first case that they really dealt with was advertising. So you know, when I was a kid in high school, um, uh, uh, the oil companies, I think it was mobile oil, I think it existed at the time, and then it became Gulf. They used to take out these quarter page ads on the uh, op-ed page of the New York Times. But they weren't like buy you know, buy oil kind of ads. They were, they, they were like op-eds themselves. They were things about the fossil fuel industry. And you know they had footnotes and they were making claims and factual claims and arguments. And had they been written and just published simply as an op-ed, it would be impossible to tell the difference between the ad and the op-ed. And what the business community and what the right did was to say, this kind of advertising, even though it's paid for with money, it, and it, and its purpose is profit, that is speech. And it's no different than, say, like a popular author who writes young adult novels or, or crime fiction. You know, they write novels. Their goal is to make money. They use words. That is speech, and it's protected, and therefore advertising is speech. Now, this proved to be the, the, the Trojan horse mm. by which slowly but surely more and more areas of the economy could be redescribed as speech, and if we could just sort of jump forward uh, about forty years um, to that uh, Colorado, uh, the the wedding cake case, the master uh, master, I was going to call it masterpiece theater, but it's you know it's the the bake shop case. Yeah, yeah. And remember, you know that the cake make the wedding cake maker said, you know, this is a violation of my freedom of religion to have to make wedding cakes for gay couples. I don't believe in gay marriage. And the, court, the majority of the court, the conservatives, said that's true. Thomas wrote a, a separate opinion that was joined by Gorsuch, where he said it's not just a question of their, their religious freedom. It's also a question of their freedom of speech, mm. because making a cake is no different from an artist making a painting. It's an, a form of creative, artistic expression that we would protect under the First Amendment. And... Elana Kagan in her dissent made a very special point of saying, you know, to the world, look what these guys are doing. They are weaponizing the First Amendment. Because when you think about it, there's not really a single component of the economy that does not involve speech. Um, if I want to fire somebody, I have to do it in spoken words or in written words. So there, you could see how you could um, strike down a whole, you know, bunch of provisions about hiring and firing Mm. on the basis of of, of freedom of speech and so on and so forth.
1: That's a great. And
3: and so this is all a very long-winded way of of answering your question, which is that Thomas really believes that um, economic activity is a form of speech. This influences all of his campaign finance decisions, where he is very forthright in saying, if money is speech, if we believe that, and many liberals on the court accept that position, by the way, if that is the case, then when I am donating to a can, you know, I donated to Bernie Sanders, for instance, when I was doing that, I was expressing my speech in the same way that when I showed up to canvas for him, I was expressing political activity. And Thomas runs with that and he says, yeah, and that will mean that richer people will have more access and more influence to political candidates. And that is as it should be. That's the way um, That's the way that they do that. And unless you're going to be willing to take on the amount of money they have, which many people are nervous about, that's the end of the story. They have access.
0: So, I mean, my question is, is it possible, like, do they really believe that? Because it's so easy to... To poke holes in it logically if campaign contributions are free speech then billionaires and corporations by definition will have the loudest voice that sort of overrides the principle of like one person one vote um and i mean also you could stretch that argument anywhere sort of like you alluded to if money is speech then why isn't prostitution legal because you're not paying for, uh, you know, a sex act. You're just using your speech to say, hey, I like various sex act, fill in the blank with it. So it's so selective in how they use it that my question is, do they really believe it or is it just like a convenient rationalization for their deep corruption?
3: Right. You know, this is a tough question to answer. Um, I would say in Thomas's case, he believes it only because... The claims that he makes are so outrageous um, that if you were trying to be strategic and rationalizing things, you wouldn't say the things that he says. You would try to prettify it. You would try to hide it. Um, but Thomas is a genuine idol- ideologue. People, I mean, I, I, you know, there's there's all kinds of venality and 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 crap associated with him, which is all totally true, by the way. Um, but but like many ideologues, he 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 runs he runs ideas all the way to the to the end. And he's um you know he's also a fantasist. I, I mean I think I tend to think is more the way uh the way these people see it. Um but he would definitely say, of course, billionaires um should have more say. You know, after all, um it's you liberals and you progressives who have been, you know. Shitting on all these people for so long, these rich people not understanding that they are the backbone. They are they they create the world essentially. Um, you know this is really at the heart of the right. You know conservative view that have, that have, they've been arguing in both you know pretty polemical terms, but very learned theoretical terms. They have no problem making the case that wealthy people. Um, bring something to the table that the rest of us just don't have. They have imagination and vision and talent. And we, you know, we know this because of what they've reaped in the marketplace. And the difference I think is that um, where traditionally, I think many people on the left thought that the conservatives were limiting that to you know, their view of the economy. There should be rich and poor in the economy. What's really been going on for a very long time, again, going back to the seventies, is that the right has thought it's, you know, if if we're supreme in the economy, we should be supreme in the polity as well. Um, We know how to get things done, right? We know how to organize all, you know, this economy and all the rest of it. And I mean, I will say, you know, the the left is not um, innocent in this regard, Mm -hmm. just in the following sense. You know, when Jimmy Carter ran for election in 1976, And he said, you know, I was the governor of Georgia and he compared his record to somebody who runs a corporation well. In other words, running corporations, running the economy was the gold standard of leadership. And many liberals bought into this idea. What conservatives did was to say, well, if we are the gold standard of leadership, it's not just because of the virtues we bring into the economy, it's also what we bring, again, to the polity as well. And Thomas, I mean, I think sometimes to the embarrassment of the right, you know, says the quiet part out loud to use that cliche that, you know, Says.
1: Well, you're reminding me of during the, the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump fight where there was this argument from liberals of like, he's not even a real billionaire and real billionaires actually support right. us. It's like, wait, what? Why are, yeah. why are we, why is this the, the argument that we're using against this dude? Right. So um, point taken there. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you see any uh, current sort of analogs that are really ideologically in line with Thomas who have this uh, very race pessimist, but race first view, and end up, you know, on the hard right because of you know the way that they take that to its logical or illogical conclusion. Do you see anyone else out there who's prominent that shares a similar worldview?
3: Well, prominent, I, probably not. I wouldn't say. But what one of the things that I've been struck by over the last three or four years, um, and this really you saw this really developing under Trump, is that. You know, as the nation, as the polarization became more intense, as the violence, the white nationalist violence became more intense and scarier, you saw an uptick. And I thought this was really interesting, and it got very little coverage in not only the buying of guns and armaments, but among Black and Brown people buying guns. And, you know, this isn't, you know, a kind of a formal position or anything like that that's being stated. But Thomas again and, and this is not very well known but you know when he defends the right to bear arms, this is a whole story he tells going back to black reconstruction and how central it was to arm black men against white supremacist terrorists. This is in all of his opinions. you won't find this in Robert's opinions you know you sometimes find it in Alito but not that much mm-hmm. uh, this is the centerpiece and so what you see here is, Uh, a kind of uh, a political position that Thomas has taken in these court opinions being adopted in in, in practice throughout the whole political culture. And I think interestingly enough, I mean, people have often asked me this, how could somebody who's really a black nationalist end up being Donald Trump's favorite justice, which he was until Donald Trump appointed his justices. Um, And the truth of the matter is, is that first of all, there's a long been the kind of fraternization between black nationalist figures like uh, Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and white nationalists, um, in part because you know, um, particularly with someone like Garvey, this view of the permanence of the race divide is not something that only is held by black people or black nationalists. Um, it has now become a, you know a commonplace on the right as well. Um, and and I, so I think there is a kind of uh, a weird way in which Thomas is the mirror image of Trumpism, um, not just for the obvious reasons that he hangs out with white billionaires and all the rest of it,
0: mm-hmm. but
3: because, you know, this, this, this view of the centrality of, of the racial divide and the permanence, that it organizes everything in the culture and in the politics. Uh, I think there's a, 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 a real um, you know, synergy, for lack of a better word there.
1: Well, it um, that whole black Second Amendment gun rights thing was just uh, spouted by Vivek Ramaswamy in that debate with uh, Don yes. Lemon. That ends up, I guess, being part of the reason that Don Lemon got fired because his co-hosts were so irritated by the way that he hogs the, the spotlight all the time. But it's a great example of how Thomas's yeah. idea is adopted by someone who's you know now running for president of the United States.
3: I was watching. I was watching that. Sorry. And I was was struck by was that he was sort of fumbling to try to make the case. And I thought, is he going to really get into the specifics? And he just sort of nodded to it. But absolutely. It was definitely, you know, that kind of the black Second Amendment. Absolutely.
0: It's interesting, though, when you look at it, it really does show that some in some sense, horseshoe theory can be real because, you know, you have Antonin Scalia, deeply, deeply conservative. And, you know, They probably has a nearly identical voting record with Clarence Thomas. There's probably count on one hand or two hands the number of cases that they disagreed. And they were, you know, they were on the court together for so, so long. Um,
1: Well, there's also a horseshoe there between the racial pessimism of like the 1619 Project types and Thomas's view. I mean, they take that to different places um but that that core like assumption this is the original sin we're never going to get beyond it like race relations are what they are some group of the country is always going to be racist there's not much we can do about it i mean those are sentiments that you hear commonly uh among liberals now
0: yeah, i mean yeah i mean some portion of of liberals yes i do i i mean i'd be interested to hear both your thoughts on this i do think the default view on race Among most liberals is still the polar opposite, which is like you should effectively strive to be as colorblind as possible and just treat people equally across the board. I agree with you that some of the louder voices, perhaps in media and academia. Don't take that stance. You know, the, the people who say, you know, it's not good enough to just not be racist. You have to be, quote unquote, anti-racist. Um, but I still think the predominant view is probably the old school liberal one of like, we should try to make it so that nobody sees color anywhere and you just treat everybody equally.
1: How do you see it, Corey?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that where
3: the distinction lies is not on like the, the well, sorry, as we call it, in political theory, we call it the normative or the prescriptive. It's not, you know, like what you sh- ought to do. I think where the commonality really lies is, what do you think is the deep reality of American politics? And I think you're right, Kyle, that people would say, yeah, that is, uh, you know, 69 people, you know, that is the deep reality, and that's what we have to strive to change. However, I think that the, the thing about racial pessimism is that um, it it makes the sort of the striving to change uh, almost a kind of a Sisyphean task. It's Mm -hmm. like you ought to do something that you know you're going to fail at. Um, And I think that's a hard position for the left actually to adopt. Um, I think to go out and build a popular program with the premise being that you're going to fail, which you know, thanks to the right and neoliberalism, everybody already believes that organized collectivist, activist, left politics is going to fail like we don't need more arguments for why we're going to fail at something <laughs> what we do need is an argument about why it's possible to actually transform things politically not through the marketplace and not through elites you know not through harvard and yale diversifying themselves anymore uh in addition but through ordin- the ordinary political capacities of power that ordinary people have that's the real task. And I do feel like, you know, Clarence Thomas cut his teeth on arguing precisely against that position. that it is not, you know, there is no alternative. It is not possible. Uh, and it's interesting how that kind of racial pessimism, you know, can do- dovetail with a kind of you know black capitalism. Um, and I, you know, I, so they, are, you know, I do think he is, you know, ultimately as as quirky and as strange as he is. Specifically, when you compare him to somebody like uh, Scalia and so forth, he's weirdly symptomatic of something much larger than himself.
0: So, um, this is another thing that pops in my head every time I think of Clarence Thomas or Antonin Scalia, for that matter. So, with Scalia, there was a, a case that had to do with uh, weed legalization at the state level. And of course, he opposed it. And he cited the supremacy clause. You know, the federal government gets to override the states. That's how this works. Right. But then when there are cases that uh, coincide with his political ideology, like, for example, uh, a case on Arizona immigration, where they effectively wanted to do their own like border policing and build their own border wall, um, he supported the state of Arizona and said, hey, man, states rights are supreme. So the supremacy clause is out the window. So you look at that, it's just like a stark contradiction. It's very clear he's going based off of his own political whims and not applying a principle. In some cases, like on free speech issues, you could argue he does try to more, uh, take a more principled stand. But you, know, you look at Clarence Thomas, and I see a very similar thing. He voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. And in that decision, he very famously said, hey, we should look at gay marriage again next and maybe go back on that. But it's like he mentioned a number of cases we should revisit he conveniently left out interracial marriage and he's in an interracial marriage. So again, I come back to the question of like, it's hard for me to think that he doesn't view himself on some level as kind of a hack and just a you know politically biased person who's uh, basically adjudicating based on his whims.
3: So I think there's some truth to what you're saying here. Um, I mean, I, I come up with some other examples of this um, that I think are even more greater indictments. Um, but I, I think there is some truth to this, and despite, you know, having this kind of black nationalist jurisprudence, he's also a Republican and a conservative, and there are some cases where he just sort of votes down the line. However, I want to address the specific one that you just talked about, because it came up a lot in the, um, the media after um, the Dobbs decision, and I actually think there he does, <laughs> I'm going to sound like I'm an apologist for him, he does actually have a more principled position. Um, and this gets a little bit wonky, and I'll just try to make it quick and, 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 and not too technical. Um, but, you know, the 14th Amendment has a couple of different clauses. Uh, one is the Equal Protection Clause, and one is the Due Process Clause. The cases that come up under, you know, that are abortion and that oftentimes are defended are under the, uh, the Due Process Clause, you know, and it gets to this issue of substantive due process. The Loving case was overwhelmingly an equal protection case. That was not true of the gay marriage case. It was partially equal protection, but it was also under due process. And so I think, you know, I don't know what he would rule on loving and interracial marriage, so I I can't make any prediction about that. But that is a, there's a different trajectory. Um, And this, you know, probably sounds very lawyerly and technical, but it actually really goes to the heart of Thomas's whole critique of, of liberalism and how it has used the due process clause um, to advance its cause. And I'm not saying he opposes this um, for profound philosophical reasons. It's it's very political. But he is consistent, I think, in that case where he excludes uh, the interracial marriage component of, of the precedents he wants to take a look at.
0: But isn't there a strong case for gay marriage under equal protection, though? Like it there just absolutely seemed, is. Yeah.
3: But that wasn't the the bulk. You know, if you look at Kennedy's decision, the way it was decided was on due process grounds. Mm. It was not on equal protection grounds. That wasn't the primary rest of it. So I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, famously said we should argue for abortion, not on due process, but on equal protection grounds.
0: Mm. So
3: these are, you know, these are real divisions among uh, justices and all the rest of it all i'm just trying to say is is that the 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 lawrence decision the gay marriage decision was decided primarily not on uh, uh, equal protection, but on due process grounds.
1: So the revelations with regards to uh, corruption and Justice Thomas have opened up a sort of hornet's nest of whatever is going on at the Supreme Court. You've New got, one
0: with Gorsuch now. Yeah, yeah, there's
1: issues with Gorsuch now. And then you have uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who's effectively covering for that. He's refusing to testify on any of these issues. The Supreme Court, sort of infamously now, doesn't have a standard of ethics or code of conduct the way that every other federal judge in the country does you brought up Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, When she was alive, she had a very close personal relationship with a top court reporter that was not really disclosed. I mean, I consider that to be corruption of a sort as well. So how do you view all of these issues with regard to the court? And do you think that the other conservatives on the court have a similar view of this of it's not really corruption, it's just free speech, and y'all need to get real that billionaires are going to have this influence and probably should have this kind of influence anyway?
3: Yeah, I mean, I suspect the conservatives pretty much do agree with Thomas on this. I mean, the pattern with this has always been that Thomas is in the avant-garde. He says these things and slowly but surely other conservatives come around to his point of view. Um, and just, you know, parenthetically, it's been, you know, one of, you know, I, I think there is a kind of subtle or not so subtle racism at work that for many years, Um, People thought it was, you know, Scalia who was leading the way and Thomas was his kind of puppet, when in fact, oftentimes, according to all the deepest court reporting that we have, it was exactly the opposite. Thomas was taking the more extreme view and Scalia was coming around to his point of view. So I think in general, it's probably true that the, the conservatives, you know, pretty much agree with Thomas and the fact that they will most likely very easily survive and weather this particular ethics scandal um, Will just confirm them in being more uh, outspoken about this. I think you know the bigger issue really has to do with the power of the court, the way the court rules, and not really so much with who's pulling the the financial strings behind the court. And I think you know, if at my hope, most hopeful, I just hope that this latest scandal is one more way of chipping at the legitimacy of the court, which to my mind has you know. Um, uh, 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 uh sacrificed its legitimacy a long long time ago and that this is a long reckoning that we have been uh due overdue about the power of the Supreme Court, the way liberals and Democrats have, you know, as they've been losing elections, have relied more and more and more on the court uh, to shore up a position that they couldn't uh, really defend electorally and politically. Um, and you know the it's uh the chickens have come home to roost because liberals no longer control the court and now are having to confront that fact and are going to have to start doing the kind of political work that in fact the conservatives did when they were in the political wilderness mm. um and in, in, you know interestingly, you know, people I, in a way, I, I view these scandals around the court as a sign of the waning power of the right and I know that, is a kind of counterintuitive move but let's not forget you know why did liberals hold on to the court you know with such great passion that was not the project of the New Deal wasn't um, despite the court packing wasn't let's look to the Supreme Court to win our battles for us it was let's get to the Supreme Court out of politics. But as you know that New Deal coalitions unravels, liberals increasingly rely had to rely on the court to protect their positions. And ultimately, that is a long-term losing strategy. And I feel like the fact that the conservatives now have um, hitched their cart to that wagon, precisely at the moment that they are starting to lose elections, that they have to now rely on the court, uh, you know, all these counter-majoritarian, anti-democratic institutions, tells you something. I think about uh, the the oddly enough, the waning power of the right, not the gaining power of the right.
0: So let me ask you about that then because the court has immense power and I mean, they basically have a veto over anything the executive branch does, anything the legislative branch does. All they have to do is say – uh, yeah, uh, unconstitutional. And they could come up with whatever stretch of an argument they want to come up with. I mean, we've seen very extremist courts in the past. The Lochner era comes to mind. Um, it seems like in a way we're in a new Lochner era. I don't know if, if, if you would go that far, but you know, curious to hear your thoughts on that as well. But I've gone back and forth on this question, this idea of like, Hey, was Marbury versus Madison decided wrong? Like, is the judicial review a uh, problem? I know Tom Hartman, who I deeply love and respect, has always said he's anti-judicial rev- review. He's had that position even when the court makes decisions that it- he agrees with, Um me, The thing that I've been more interested in, and I've gone back and forth on Judicial Review, yeah, it, it's good, no, it's bad. It all, it all depends on how that decision goes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Total hypocrite. I'm like, yeah, good now, gay marriage, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I recently learned, again, from Tom Hartman, he's my political dad, um, about we have provisions for court stripping in the Constitution— that basically say like, hey, you're allowed to – legislative branch is allowed to say, oh, and by the way, the court is not allowed to rule on this thing that we're passing right now.
1: Yeah, we're carving so, this one out. You, don't, you keep, yeah. don't get to touch it.
0: So what's your sense on how we sort of end the judicial tyranny? Do we say Marbury versus Madison was wrong? We shouldn't have judicial review. Do we do court stripping? Do we pack the court? Do we do term limits? Like there's all there's a whole spectrum and some of the things are more moderate and some of the things are more extreme. I'm curious what your view on it is.
3: I mean, I sort of say all of the above, Um, you know, I'm pretty open to a lot of these measures. Um, What I will say, though, and and I and I do understand the nervousness that people on the left have uh, for a lot of very, very good reasons. But one thing that is I think is important to remember is that this has actually been the norm in American history is not to have the court be the supreme interpreter of what the Constitution is. Correct. Um, you know, there's a great book uh, by um, Willie Forbath and Joe uh, Joseph Fishkin that came out last year. I think it's called the Anti-Oligarchy and Constitution, the Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, and they really look carefully. They're two law professors at the development of these ideas, and you know what they really say is, it's like it's the Cold War. Where you see Eisenhower and then and JFK saying, you know, the Supreme Court is, has interpreted the Constitution. It's our, and it was, I think, on school prayer and something else. It's our job to follow the rules of the court. And that was not the attitude of, you know, FDR when the court struck down his, in, in, his uh, program. We all know about court packing and such. But in 1935, he held this huge um, press conference and he walks, I mean, and everybody's watching. And you know, this is an elected president. You know, this isn't a learned legal scholar or anything like that. And he just walks the American people through the Commerce Clause, which is an obscure clause but very important in the construction of the welfare state and civil rights. And he shows why the court is getting it wrong. And it's like a, it's a, it's a public moment. Abraham Lincoln did the exact same thing. Um, we the, used to be the idea was that multiple uh, elected officials. Have a role in interpreting what the meaning of the Constitution is, and it is not, not just the court. But now we're talking about a bunch of Ivy League educated, you know, Harvard and Yale uh, educated people who are on the court. Um, it really has become, a, you know, a, 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 a real remove, and I don't see how anybody thinks uh, we can move forward unless that power is uh, stripped and, and pushed back. And, I mean and honestly, that is exactly what's going to happen. Um, you have had repeated showdowns in American history about the power of the court. Um, that is as normal, if not more normal, um, as the kind of um, obeisance that I think a lot of liberals and progressives show uh, toward the power of the court.
1: I want to uh, hear more about your view of where the right and the conservative movement is now, because y- you just asserted you see this as a sign of their winning power. I'm honestly not sure what I think about whether they're ascendant or descendant or what the medium term looks like, because on the one hand, you know, they control the court, which is sort of supreme in terms, even though they're supposed to be co-equal branches, really the Supreme Court ends up being supreme. They control so many state governments and we see, you know, the damage that they're able to inflict on a a daily basis. Uh, They still control the House of Representatives. Uh, They have a massive advantage in the Senate. Uh, Very possible that next time around they regain control of the Senate, which Democrats have a bare majority of. Right now, the presidential race is a toss up. If it's Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, the uh, average polls has Trump up by Uh, One percentage point. And so I I look at that and I don't necessarily see a movement that is, you know, in decline or collapsing. And then the other piece is even if they are losing the majority of people with a lot of their more extreme views. It seems to me like a lot of the more small-D democracy or democratic feedback mechanisms within our country are sort of broken. I mean, you know, you talked about how there, there will be a check on the Supreme Court. I mean, it seems to me like they see themselves as unaccountable, that they don't feel any pressure really to change. And it's hard for me to see how you have real feedback between the, you know, regular American people and what is supposed to be democracy and the way the elites govern things. So how do you see those pieces?
3: Um, I look at different pieces. That's how I see those pieces. Uh, But no. um, So, I mean, I I think where I start, and I've been saying this since 2016 when Trump won, and I, you know, I did not predict that at all. I I thought Clinton would win like many other people did. But here are the things that I um, have, you know, pointed to and continue to point to is that, you know, first of all, if you look at the big uh, right wing wins in in the presidency, going back to Nixon. What you see is this really interesting decline in the uh, the ability of these president, these conservative presidents, to win a majority. Um, uh, going from you know starting from Nixon all the way down to Trump, there's been a steady decline. And so I think that's the first thing that's really important for people to see. Uh, the second thing is if you look at how Trump governed, and you know particularly when he had total control. The Republicans had total control of all the elected branches for those first two years. Mm-hmm. What was shocking to me um, was actually how little they were able to achieve. Um and I'm not even just talking about on uh, you know, I- I'm really talking about on the kind of the really cultural war visceral stuff that they're supposedly are the centerpiece, you know, on immigration. Um, they were so unable to push any kind of bill through on immigration, they were constantly falling apart. I mean, you, you have obviously the stuff on the on Obamacare. If you look at the budgets that they passed, they, they were all more generous to social programs than Obama had been. Um, you know, Planned Parenthood, they continued funding. So I look at what happens when they do actually have total power over the federal government and aside from the tax cuts and the judges, and you know, and that has always been you know a critical uh, source of unity for them, they were very unable to. And then we come back down now to the state level, and it is true. I mean, there's no doubt about it that uh, you know uh, across the board, on a lot of those southern states, you know, they're really locking in their position. On the flip side, what we have seen is you know, the big thing about Trump was he was supposed to have broken the blue wall in the upper Midwest, um, and now. Everybody saying, you know, Michigan, Minnesota, um, and increasingly perhaps even Wisconsin, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's all flipping back. And not only that, I mean, I think that the statistic was um, 10 years ago, on all of that string of upper Midwest states, the, the Supreme Courts were already all controlled by Republicans. You know, this is the height of the Tea Party era. Mm-hmm. They've all now flipped uh, to Democrats. Um, and, you know, we can go through, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other things, Um I, I think you're right. And this is, you know, it, 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 the, the, the real source of its power is the court and some of these counter majoritarian institutions. But the key to the conservative ascendancy was something that a lot of conservative activists realized in the 1950s and the 1960s, which was we have to learn how to govern in a modern democratic society. You know, our program, you know, we have to figure out how to do that. And they have steadily lost um, the ability to do that. And so now they are falling back on some of the oldest um, tricks in, you know, in right-wing governance, Um, these counter-majoritarian institutions that I think are ultimately, you know, quite vulnerable. And, you know, I I don't think that, um, yeah, I would just say that, you know, the combination of how they rule when they are in power, which is oftentimes very limited in what they're able to do. And uh, the fact that at the state level, you're seeing an increasing ability for the left and for Democrats to actually turn the tide. Um, what that means for, you know, some of these really deep Southern states, that I, you know, I don't know. And it's obviously a huge source of concern, but I I just, I just don't think that, um, I don't think they're looking towards a long-term future um, that's a happy one for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely see it uh, differently than that. Republicans, um... Uh, Certainly aren't winning a majority in the presidential races, but they're still winning plenty of races. And even when they don't win, they're still somehow competitive. I mean, you look at how insane some of these people are, and you're amazed that they're not getting blown out, you know, 60% of the vote going to Democrats or whatever. But when you look at Trump's record... Trump tax cuts for the wealthy in 2017, deregulation, destroying the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the new NAFTA, which was very similar to the old NAFTA, pulling out of the Iran deal, pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, killing Soleimani, trying to coup Venezuela, increasing the drone war, pulling out of normalization with Cuba. Um, you know, I, we could talk economic stuff. We could talk um, executive orders. We could talk foreign policy. There, it's, the way I read it is like this. There seems to me to be a default acquiescence to corporatism and the rules of the neoliberal era. Obviously, when it comes to Republicans, I think the elected officials are all TFG, which is my acronym for Too Far Gone, as all the longtime listeners will know. I think they're basically... A wholly owned subsidiary of corporate america and billionaires they don't even really try to hide that fact and then when you look at the democratic party it's you know the tweaks around the edges party it's like they're also bought by many of the same donors but they'll throw a little bone to the people every now and then with little incrementalism here and there but i see this institution humping from democrats now which by the way is not like, it's not necessarily a bad thing, especially in the wake of Donald Trump and January 6th. It's like, you want somebody out there being a voice for like, maybe, you know, peaceful transfer of power is a good thing. Like maybe these, these institutions are kind of worth protecting. But the problem is when you talk about a lot of these institutions, like the Supreme Court, I mean, these are broken institutions. So if you're institution-humping broken institutions, then we get this situation where it's like, best-case scenario, we tread water. Worst-case scenario, we're going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. So that's my view on it. What do you think will ultimately, like snap us out of this corporate neoliberal era and usher in sort of like a social democratic movement. I know the polls of the people, the people are already there, the people already want it. I yeah. talk about it all the time on my show, but there seems to be this gap between what the people want and what we end up getting into legislation or what our institutions end up upholding. So give me, uh, give me an optimistic view of that.
3: Well, I mean, I do think you've raised what I think is, is, is the real problem here, which is um, the left and the Democratic Party. Um, you know, every you can't fight something with nothing. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: I if again, I mean, I do think some historical perspective is just you know the rights ability to mobilize votes, and I don't think you know these people who seem so crazy are in long standing with previous crazies uh, in the Republican Party. To me, the the major thing is how, and it's not just at the presidential level; it's how slimmer and slimmer and slimmer are the majorities that. Oftentimes you know, it's a minority, but the majorities that they are able to hold on to. And that's a sign of weakening political hold over the electorate. Um, but the real problem, and this has been clear since 2016, if not beforehand, is a lack of political leadership to turn what is clearly a real uh, you know, a, a, a real electorate that's out there waiting to be led. Um, and, you know, I, I'm much further to the left of the Democratic Party, and, I, and, and so I'm happy to criticize the Democratic Party, but I also think it's a problem for the left as well. Mm-hmm. There's just not the kind of institutions that you once had, like once you had the labor movement. And so my point of view tends to be that until you have a kind of real labor upsurge, of the sort that we saw glimmers of in 2018 2019 with those teacher strikes in red states. Yeah. Right? The power of those strikes was that they were not in New York City, they were not in Chicago, they were not in blue states. They were in you know, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and they won. And to me, that's what you, you know, that's what we really need to be building on. And it goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier about the racial pessimism. You know, like this is the the big big you know elephant in the room is the 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 the, the lack that lack of skill set, yeah, to really know how to mobilize not just mobilize the people who agree with you, but the people who might agree with you, right? Um, and you know the you know, that's the real thing that we have to confront. And what for, what I find frustrating is. The inability to do that is precisely what enables what I think is an increasingly sclerotic party, the Republican Party and the conservative movement, to hold on to these very sclerotic, brittle institutions. The fact that people are now on the left willing to have a conversation about the Supreme Court, I don't know what they're going to do about it, Mm. is, in my mind, a real step forward. I mean don't let's not forget when when Trump was elected the thing that all the MSNBC liberals and everybody was, you know, norm erosion. We don't want norm erosion. Mm. I wrote an article at the time and I said democracy is norm erosion. Mm-hmm. That I mean what do you think the battle against segregation was all about if not the battle against slavery? Abolitionists were norm erosionists. And the fact that people on the left are now willing, I mean they won't call it that, but are now willing to say, you know, we're going to expand the court and all of these things. That is a sign of, you know, opening things up. And you know, all I can just say is that it takes time, which may be the one thing because of climate change that we don't have. Um, but you know, you just cannot underestimate the fact the destruction of the left over fifty years. You know, preeminently with the labor movement generations of political skills and like political understanding of all these things that we were talking about were destroyed and we are slowly rebuilding them. And it just, it takes time, honestly. Um, but I do believe that's why it's so important to remind people of the waning power of the Republican party, not so that we can say, yay, Democrats, we're doing so great, but to say like, this is, uh, this is uh, a horse that can be you know toppled if, if you act.
1: Well, to your point, um, I was living in Kentucky during those uh, teacher strikes, and yeah. uh, Kentucky had a significant teachers' movement. The Republican governor at the time, Matt Bevan, was attacking their pension benefits and there are all sorts of other issues going on. and it was a you know, statewide mobilization. Public was outraged about that and a variety of other things. And you know, a state which has consistently trended to the right, elected yeah. Andy Bashir um, as governor, a Democrat, you know, he's a moderate Democrat, but he ran on, I mean, he really associated himself with the teachers movement, with the labor movement. There's still a labor tradition in Kentucky. And not only did he get himself elected, um, but he's up for reelection now. He's, he's in good position to potentially win re-election. It's not gonna be easy, but he's one of the more popular governors in the whole country. So it is a hopeful note of like, you know, there is a chance to persuade people, if you are able to build out a real labor movement, there is a chance to to do things that are different and and hopefully, you know, potentially get a better Democratic Party in the mix here as well. Um, Corey, I really want to thank you for your your time and your insight. I really recommend your books to people. They've been very uh, eye opening and very thought provoking for me. So thank you so much for spending some time with us
0: to give people wherever they can find you.
1: Uh-
3: Corey Robin.com is uh, my website, and you know uh, you can find me on Twitter. I think it's at Corey Robin. It's just
0: simple, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Thanks so much. Right. Thank you. All right, that was Corey Robin. Uh, that was a very, very interesting conversation. Um, that point that we discussed in the middle, did you do you agree with my outlook that I feel like the default perspective among most liberals is still that like, let's try to be colorblind and treat everybody equally. Or yeah. Do you th- yeah you do okay i i,
1: I think that it's very much not just liberals, I think that's the majority sentiment in, in the, the country. country, oh
0: absolutely, yeah. but
1: I think you have um very i i think you have an activist class that is very fairly influential that has a much more you know pessimistic view i mean this is like and you did see it commonly expressed, especially after after Trump wins, there's this whole debate um, about, oh, was it economic anxiety or was it just racism? Which and was a
0: dumb debate because obviously both played a role.
1: Obviously both yeah. are. Yeah. Play a role. though, and, and it's not like those two things are totally separate either. Right. So in any case, um, I think that basic view which you've heard expressed routinely and you know on msnbc and these sorts of places is like basically there's a large there's half of the country that you just you they're hopeless they're racist they're deplorable in hillary's words there's no point in even like dealing with them or trying to talk about
0: to be fair she said half of the trump supporters okay which people always leave that part out sure yeah but
1: uh You know, in the wake of Glenn Youngkin winning in Virginia, the narrative there was that, oh, it was just like the electorate was too racist and CRT. And so he had to win. And so there is this very pessimistic view that leads to things to justifying authoritarian tactics like what we've seen as well. That leads to like, okay, well, if we can't persuade people, we have to censor them. We have to ban them. We have to control them. We have to deal with the quote unquote misinformation. Rather than having a faith in an actual like democracy and ability for people to, to handle themselves and, and deal with, um, you know, what comes at them in a democratic system. So I do think there is a view that's ascendant that's very pessimistic about race relations in particular, but about, you know, half the country in general.
0: So I don't I don't really think it's ascendant. I think it's just a small group in academia and some people in media who you know espouse these opinions, but there's a whole cottage industry. Visible,
1: but not there's a whole in
0: cottage way. industry in dunking on those people because everybody <laughs> sees it as absurd. So, but I would also say that um, people always talk about, well, what. Who started it and who's just responding? Like, what's the, what's who's the one that's engaging in? We're, we're the backlash. You started it. We're just the backlash. Mm-hmm. People on the right claim, well, the left started it with their race obsession and this is just the backlash. And people on the left would claim the same thing about people on the right. I would just say, let's not forget that even though it wasn't uh, self-branded as uh, white nationalism, I, I mean, Trump came to prominence. He did say, Muslim, like, Sh- shut down the Muslims from coming in this country until we figure out what the hell is going on. And, you know, he still went on to win. Then he had his famous moment when he launched saying, the Mexicans, they're criminals, they're rapists. I'm sure some are good people. So in other words, you had this, like he pointed out, this very, like, race-centric argument Mm -hmm. coming from the right. And so there are some people on the left who would argue any sort of uh, racial identity group politics that happens on the left is almost like a backlash where they say, hey you guys are attacking minority groups and so when we describe hey here's how these minority groups uh, don't have a leg up and and they're struggling it is in reaction to you guys basically running uh, you know a very nativist campaign yeah. to use well- a more neutral word.
1: Just to clarify what I'm I'm saying, obviously, I'm not saying like we should just ignore racial discrimination and pretend it doesn't exist. Right. And I know you're not arguing that. Yeah, no, right. I'm not
0: arguing. The distinction
1: that. I'm trying to make is in the people who would say um, th- discrimination exists. It's something we can overcome. Here are some ways to overcome it. We have a positive agenda moving forward that the ultimate goal should be color blindness, and then everybody has a fair shot and, you know, basic like floor underneath them. And people who would say This is the racism is the original sin. Um, Race relations are never really going to change that. There are is a vast swath of the public, if not all white people who are just, you know, always going to be what they are. And so we you should effectively like give up on really persuading those people. And that pessimism, that race relations pessimism of this is just the way things are and they will never be different. I think is shared between people who have the 1619 project view of the world and someone like Justice Thomas, who has brought that to a very different place politically, but at its core has that same level of deep cynicism about the ability to fundamentally change race relations in the country.
0: Yeah, I understand everything you're saying there, and I agree with it. I would just point out that we have to be careful because sometimes when you just describe systemic racial injustices, people will claim what you're doing is being a racial pessimist and saying things are never going to change, mm-hmm. where you can make the argument. So I'll do one right now here. Uh, there are systemic injustices in the drug war. All of the stats prove it. White people, black people sell drugs at the same rate. Black people get arrested for it more often. The list goes on and on. Even when it comes to the death penalty, if a white person and a black person commit the same crime, it's much more likely the black person gets the death penalty. When I point that out, it's not... It, implied in that is not the idea. This can never change. And it is what it is. Mm -hmm. I point that out to say, hey, these are actually problems we can fix in pretty straightforward and simple ways that would help us get to a more colorblind society where we treat everybody equally. You know, but just me bringing up those facts, you would have many people on the right be like race first guy over here. It's like, no, I'm just pointing out an objective fact and saying, for example, on the drug war front, the way you fix that problem is to end the drug war, mm-hmm. right? When it comes to the, the problem with the death penalty, the way you fix that problem is get rid of the death penalty, right? Like these are, so they're very clear solutions that make it so people get treated more equally. Um, and we do get closer to a colorblind society. You sort of, in a policy-driven way, remove the systemic injustices. But um, I would just, again, want to reiterate the point that just bringing up that some systemic injustices exist doesn't mean you agree with the 1619 Project or Tanahisi Coates, and I fear that literally anybody who brings up a fact like that, they do get the backlash of like, "Why were we talking about race first, bro?" And I find that kind of disingenuous and, and yeah. dumb.
1: Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, the left has a ideological, like a program, you know, a universe more universal program. Like we have policy ideas to move the ball forward. Whereas the people who are more uh, actual like race pessimists and things will never change. It's more about, all right, so let's just get like a few more of our people represented. Like it ends up in this more sort of tokenist uh, representation focused or surface level identity focused politics. So anyway, it's a lot going on there, but uh, I really recommend the books to you really thought-provoking, um, great analysis, and definitely made me think a little differently about the ideological project that Clarence Thomas is engaged in.
0: Definitely, definitely. And everybody, uh, shoot on over to Substack if you haven't yet. You could sign up for free and listen to the audio version of the podcast as soon as it drops on Saturdays. It'll be emailed right to you. And you could also support, if you pay $5 a month, you end up getting the video of every interview and you get it a day early. Remember, we take no corporate money, no advertiser money for this show at all. It's fully funded by you guys, five bucks a pop at a time and so we deeply appreciate any support that you guys might give us um and a massive thank you to everybody who already is a subscriber on substack we love you guys and by the way shout out to everybody in the control room helping us out
1: that's right um
0: i know colvin's had a lot on his shoulders lately colvin we appreciate you man and um
1: chuck love you and
0: and piper too piper always doing those banging ass newsletters so all right guys we love you we'll talk to you soon peace